Thank you. <clears throat> Hello. It's very nice to be with you, and I have come with uh, the people from my church. We're trying to lend out to other people. You can do the maths uh, on that. Um, but my name is John, and um, I want to begin by saying how fortunate I think you are to have Mike and Bex as leaders. Um, I've seen a lot of church leaders over the time. I know I look remarkably young, but I'm actually slightly older. And basically... Uh, I've rarely met people with such integrity and such desire for the things of God. And so I'm happy for you um, that you have them as leaders. And um, I'm also, you know, in your debt as a friend of yours for everything that you've done to help and support Jenny and I. Um, So basically, um, you'll be glad to know that I'm excited. Are you excited with me? You have no idea why you're excited, do you? That's such a thing church leaders do, isn't it, to churches? And it's such a thing churches do back to church leaders who are speaking. Um, I am going to tell you why I'm excited, and it's quite likely that you will not be excited by what I'm excited about. It's possible that some of you will be, but I'm guessing some of you won't. That's the way it is. So I'm excited about something that happens every, uh, every year in my church at this time. And we do our own version of Alpha. It's called the Life Course, and we've been doing it forever. It starts a little bit further back um, from Alpha, but it's basically the same thing. And as a prelude to that, we have a uh, Life Course dinner. And every year, um, it's part of my role to try to encourage our church to invite their friends, much as Mike is doing now. And uh, this is actually the most exciting part of my job, bar nothing, like, for example, meeting people in a dark room or planning meetings or PCCs, that kind of thing. So basically, not only do I like like that, but I am odd in various different ways. I'm actually statistically odd. Somebody um, gave us some kind of gift identification course from America, and uh, it identified that people like myself are actually in a tiny minority in the church, but that is not a surprise to me because I experienced myself to be quite odd in church. And as I drone on, you think to yourself, he's a bit odd. A, you'd be right, and B, you'd be right. So basically, I am a little bit unusual because I really, really like the evangelistic thing. I don't pretend to like it. I actually like it. I used to be an atheist and basically was converted from extraordinarily drab atheism and a sense of meaninglessness and um, fear that my life was just going to go on from one thing to the next to the next with no overarching purpose or meaning. Um, When I encountered Jesus, I had an extraordinary experience of Jesus after a lot of going forward and backwards. So I was quite impressed by the Christians I met, but I would never have admitted that because I'd done religious studies O-level. And if you've done religious studies O-level, you will know that you know everything there is to know about the New Testament. So I knew everything there was to know about the New Testament. I'd done a crash course in why it was one big fairy story. I believed it was a big fairy story. Just to make sure that everything else was a fairy story, I studied all the other religions as well. And guess what? They were all fairy stories too, as far as I was concerned, had a little go at the occult, nothing. And so basically, when I went to Oxford to study law, I was well and truly a rational skepticist, and that's not a word, and basically a rational skeptic. And basically, I was out of there on the religious front. It's all, you know, you're playing with large, imaginary, fluffy bunnies, guys and girls. So that's what I thought. But the Christians had a certain something. They had a certain compelling little something, whatever that was, a sense of peace or whatever it was, and it drew me to them. But I would never admit it. I used to abuse this one guy every time I walked past his door because he was a Christian, saying, Charles Warren is a moron because he was a Christian. I sometimes disturb prayer meetings where they were praying for me. So basically, that's persecution. So basically... um, that went on for a while, so it was backwards and forwards, and I, I went to a Christian musical event. That was hideous, musically hideous. But the woman had the same thing. 
The same thing in her face. It was very striking and obvious to me. When you're hungry, you can see it everywhere. And um, basically, I went to hear somebody speak about the claims of Jesus in the town hall in Oxford. And the more they spoke, the more I lost consciousness of everything around me. Didn't have a vision. But all I was aware of was a presence. And it was a presence I'd met many, many years ago when I was a child. And basically, that presence was uh, necessary at home because we had a tradition of family arguments at Christmas. And I stropped off into the wood to calm down, met this presence. And I felt it was like a naked vulnerability. Would you like to come this way with me? And I remember saying no and walking in the other direction. Anyway, the more this guy spoke, the more I it was the same person and basically he said if you'd like to become a Christian do you want to come forward well I wasn't going to do that but I could feel a power moving me off my chair so I gripped the chair tightly as you would you know being English and all I just gripped it thinking whoa let's not get carried away let's just grip the chair everything will be fine and it was and I kind of left the building feeling a bit shaken went home with my friend who'd invited me who was a Christian he was actually going to be ordained and uh, he said to me because we had an argument on the way home and I think being a Christian he was uncomfortable with arguments and all he said why don't we pray together before we separate and I thought that is very odd but anything it's been an odd evening right so in for an odd penny in for an odd pound so we went back to my room sat in a couple of chairs and he prayed something out loud and as he prayed out loud this presence filled my body and I basically started to shake and I started crying and I started speaking in another language which was a bit of a shock for him because he didn't do any of that stuff and basically he didn't believe in any of that stuff but undeniably it was happening to me in his presence and basically, I would then was filled with a massive, massive desire to read the Bible. I could not put the Bible down. It was like the best book ever written. You know, it's like a massive page turning the book, the Bible. Just give me the Bible. I was like a pregnant woman with a food fad. Please, could I have more of the Bible? When I was doing law, which was incredibly dull, don't ever, ever do law unless you are incredibly dull. Anyway, basically, I, I um, no, 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 I don't mean that. Mike did law. Um, he's not incredibly dull. Um, so basically, uh, uh, it just wasn't me. I was a creative, as you can tell, and slightly unusual. So basically, um, uh, effectively, and now I've put myself off now. So effectively, uh, I, I wanted to read the Bible all the time. And, it, and it, when I was doing law, very boring. Uh, my special treat was reading a bit of the Bible. Oh, give me the Bible. It was lovely. And I wanted to pray, 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 pray all the time. Nobody taught me how to pray. The Christians couldn't really answer my questions before I became a Christian. And they didn't really help me that much afterwards. Not very much. So they were very nice, though, but they didn't really help me. They didn't really have, I didn't have much, much to say, but they were nice people. Anyway, so I, I started praying and I couldn't stop praying. I love praying and I like speaking about my faith and I found oh look I've got some so I became an atheist that had faith and I just wanted to talk about it all the time so I did I was extremely aggressive very insensitive and you can see the Christians thinking this is great but this is really not great you know, the way you're doing this is, this is fantastic you're doing this, but please can you stop? And basically, because I would speak to anyone, I would interpret God's guidance, should I speak to this person as, are they breathing? And not a Christian. Let's do it. Let's see what happens. Now, a lot of people actually did become Christian as a result of that aggressive phase. And that just raises the point that when it comes to evangelism, things like the stuff Mike's in, encouraging you to do, God will use anyone. I mean, anyone. He even used me. And I've noticed that the people that God uses in church a lot are a bit odd. Have you noticed that? They tend to be a little unusual and a little bit extreme. Basically, an extremist is somebody who's a bit more enthusiastic than you, generally speaking. So they, are, tend, to, they tend to be a little bit extreme, and um, they show up for business. 
The people that God uses in church, it doesn't matter what it is, praying, you know, healing, uh, serving coffee, um, leading, they're just people that turn up. They're not necessarily good at it. They just show up. And God uses what he can. I I think he has no special children, but he quite likes people that show up. And if if he's got nothing else, he'll find a donkey. Do you know what I mean? So basically, he'll just use anyone and anything. Now, um, can't be bothered with that. So basically, as if by coincidence, you are now embarking on the one campaign, aren't you? Um, With your alpha dinner, which will come, which I noticed wasn't mentioned, though I'd like you to know that I actually memorized all the notices from this morning. That's a professional illness of some kind, I think. And apologetics nights are coming up, and there's also Ciroc dance night. It's spooky. It's almost as if Mike thought to himself, I could will out old John to whip my church into an evangelistic throff before these things happen. And you know what? I would really have enjoyed that. That would have given me pleasure. I think I could have given it a good go. Um, But um, earlier in the week, after I had very graciously written a very nice talk about this subject for you, I felt God interrupt me and say, uh, I don't want you to do that, which is really irritating. I mean, time is money. Do you know what I mean? There's only so much time I've got, and I'm actually doing this again next week somewhere else. It'll be different talks, and I'm actually on tour. So I have not got time for God interfering with my speaking schedule. But under the, uh, over the years, of course, I've been grateful when he has because it's amazing to see what God does when he's doing something. And I, it's also much, much better if we get with his program, if we're able to discern what it is. So I've been the nice talk, and I believe he wants me to ask you a question. I'm not asking it now. I've got other things to say. So just a few other points. Um, first of all, when it comes to you know, inviting your friends to alfie type things... Um, basically, some people love it, don't they? The exception. They're, they're about, in general, there are about 15% of people in church, according to this gift identification survey, this is a secret between you and me, 15% that quite like evangelizing. And of the number of church leaders that quite like evangelizing, the number's five, 5%. Now, you're lucky to have one who actually quite likes it. It's quite good, given that Jesus said something about, you know, go into all the world and make disciples of every nation. Do you remember that? Somewhere in the end of Matthew's Gospel, you know what I'm saying? So theoretically, it's the main thing, isn't it? So it's quite good to have a leader that actually quite likes that and is quite good at it. So some people really like evangelizing, don't they? They like explaining their faith. They like answering questions. Uh, For some reason, they can do this with complete strangers. They find them in car parks. They find them in pubs. They're always talking about, oh, I bumped into Julie. I don't know Julie. Oh, she asked me a question like, how can I find God? And I was able to tell her. And they've always got these stories. And there are some people who just can do that kind of thing. And, you know, we think, how do you do that? And there are people like that. And then there's everybody else. And they don't really love it so much. They feel vaguely guilty when Alfrey things are mentioned. They certainly aren't going to dance with Mike. And they're quite, not quite sure really what apologetics is. So some people feel like they've got other gifts you know, like they're quite busy in the church, actually. Church takes up quite a lot of my time. I'm here every Sunday. Thank you very much. What else do you want me to do? I'm not going to invite my friends as well as serving coffee and helping with the kids' church and everything else I'm doing. Do you know what I mean? So they've got other things that are, these are not my gifts. I've got to know my gifts. It's not my gift. And some of you uh, have been around long enough to know the talk on the gifts of the Spirit. So it's not my gift. You know, it's your gift. It's not my gift. And so basically, we think we count ourselves out automatically. 
But really, if you think about the early church, when it exploded on the day of Pentecost, obviously there were apostolic people who went out and did the business and signs and wonders and everything, but there was everybody else too. I don't, don't think the church grew just through the works of a few anointed people. Surely everybody chattered the gospel because they were so excited. Do you remember when you first became a Christian? Quite possibly you were quite excited. I'm thinking, unless you really grew up with it forever, you were probably quite excited and you probably did talk to your friends because you were excited, weren't you? And there are some people who, for whatever reason, maintain that excitement and other people for whom it's not quite the same. Some of us will remember when we had non-Christian friends. And others have still got non-Christian friends. And some people have had bad experiences, you know, they've found the whole preaching the gospel thing embarrassing when they brought people to church, they've invited friends, it's been a bit cringy or it's been positively detrimental, you've simply killed them. And some people are old enough to have been forced out into the streets to bear evangelistic witness to terrible mime or drama or dance or something. So basically the stats say that 10% of Christians actually evangelize, 10% pray and 10% give money. And that raises the question, what are the other 70% doing? Unless, of course, it's the same 10% that evangelize, pray, and give money, in which case you're asking yourself, what are the other 90% doing? And that means that the holy grail for all church leaders is, how do I move more people to do something together. Now, there are lots of things we could do with going, doing together. Like, for example, if you have a church holiday, it'd be a bit sad if three people went to that. If you've got a church prayer meeting, it's a bit sad if nobody goes to that. If, as a church leader, you don't want to ask everybody to go to everything because obviously you have your life, don't you? And you need to live your life and it doesn't need to be lived in the church building. But some of it does if you want a happy church story. So there are some things we do have to do together in order for it to actually work. And so basically, our sort of dream is when we want to move a larger number of people to do something, how do we do that thing? That's our sort of thing that we constantly think about. And uh, I've alluded to some of the reasons why it's difficult. Uh, And in general, you know, I blame the church experience people have, not the people that come, the church experience they have. In other words, if it was more exciting, you'd be more excited, right? That's the way it is. If you're actually excited about something, a book, a film, a anything, you talk, a, a relationship, you talk about it, don't you? You can't stop yourself. You love it. And you want everybody else to share in your excitement. That's what it means to be human. So I deduce that generally speaking, including my own church, generally speaking, people are not that excited about the context. If they were more excited, they'd actually bring more people. So I blame people like Mike and I. I blame the leaders of the church who set the tempo for the church. I don't blame the people of the church. The pe- I, my calling is to love the people of the church. I love the people of the church, not all of you, obviously, but I love you generally, the people of the church. And no, my job is to love the people of the church, and it's not, it isn't fair to blame or shame the people of the church, except its leaders, so I will do that. But I want to talk about this question that I think God has, and you judge for yourself whether you think this is from God and for you. So that's not my job. My job is just to do what I think God wants me to do and yours is to weigh it and test it and see what you think. So I've just got a simple question, which is this. Have you, have you got, have you got a, have you got a song going on? Have you got a song going on? Just going deeper, going beneath the superficial reasons why people might not want to speak about their faith. I want to ask a deeper question, which is, have you currently got a song going on? This is what David says in Psalm 40. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet upon a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. 
He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. So notice the connection between a song going on in David's heart and other people coming to put their trust in his God. People who actually evangelize have a song currently going on. They find it so beautiful, indeed, they're so passionate about the quality of the song that they have to sing it to other people. They've got a song going on. Here's another way of asking the question, is there a song going on? Can you hear the song that's always being sung? Can you hear the song that's always being sung? I know that like me, you regularly study the book of Zephaniah. It's not actually in the Quran. It's actually in the Bible, in the Old Testament. And this is a beautiful verse from Isaiah um, 3.17. Nobody reads anything else in Zephaniah. The Lord your God is with you. He's mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quieten you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. The Lord your God is with you. He's mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quieten you with his love. And he will rejoice over you with singing. Which means that God is always singing his song over you and I. But the question is, can we currently hear him? Is there a song going on? Can you hear the song of God that he's always singing over you? I'd like to explore the question if it's okay. Why do we cease to hear that song? Why does that song become like a foreign language? When we used to know it, when we used to know the tune and the words, why do we stop singing that song? Why does it become so hard to hear? What happens? I just want to touch on two common causes of songlessness, if that's okay. And I know that I am raising deep things. This morning, after I spoke, a lot of people came forward to identify with what was said, and did it very courageously. But you know, you've got to be able to bleed in church, and you, sorry, got to be able to bleed in hospital, and you've got to be able to cry in church. You have to be able to process your life in church, otherwise what are we doing? Shouldn't we be playing golf? It's been a beautiful day today, still quite nice, could be playing tennis, it's still light, watching the television. It's not a club, is it? This is a place of transaction, surely, between ourselves and God. So two common causes of songlessness. First of all, suffering. Suffering. Now, suffering doesn't necessarily lead to songlessness. Uh, My mother was diagnosed with cancer after I've been a Christian for a year. And she was my best friend as well as my mother and the rock of my family, really. And it was a huge loss to me to lose my mother especially at that age. But I can honestly say to you that the experience of my mother being diagnosed and eventually dying was the most spiritually productive time of my Christian life, and it established my faith on a sure foundation. Now, that's not because suffering is good for you. It is because I chose to turn to God in my suffering. I chose to see God as part of the solution not as part of the problem. I spent no time asking God why he had allowed this or why he had done this. I spent my time throwing myself upon God. He was my main grieving partner. I went through all the stages of grief 
with God as the person I mainly spoke to. And the result was that God spoke to me again and again through the Bible and also through amazing prophetic words. But God consoled me. He showed me his reality. He showed me his presence in the worst thing that could possibly happen in my world. So the result was, because I came through with God, so close to God, basically it established my faith and did no harm to it at all, despite the human loss. And I'm not denying for one moment that there was huge human loss. There was. But even in things like... What I, one of the things I used to mourn over most was certain memories of my mother suffering. And when I was crying and talking to God about it one day, he said one of the most profound things I've ever felt him say by his spirit, which is, of all the dimensions of grief, that is over. She's not stuck in a moment. She's, still not, she's not still going through that particular experience. That has finished. You know, she's with me in heaven. It's finished. It's over. So you do not need to replay that in your mind as though that's still going on because it's not still going on. It's finished. And that was very consoling to me. And I've said that to many bereaved people since. And I say it to any of you who are suffering in that way as well. What hurts is suffering without the consolation of God's presence. And, you know, I find often Christians... Don't believe that God is part of the solution as opposed to part of the problem. They blame God when they suffer. They think, they think, why has God allowed this to happen to me? If there was a God, surely God would not allow this to happen to me. I would say that's a very childlike view of God, that, that really I'm the center of the world and bad things will not happen to me because I believe. But look, we follow a crucified God, don't we? We follow a crucified God. Now, it doesn't take much imagination to think if we follow a God that was crucified and look at what happened to his first followers, it is quite likely we might suffer. See what I'm saying? It's also obvious that God does not take away from us as people who believe the normal experiences of suffering. You know, if I put my hand in the fire, it will still burn. If I am an idiot and behave like an idiot, which I have regularly done, I will hurt myself by my own behavior as well as other people. If other people behave as idiots, which they have regularly done, they will also hurt me and other people. And God does not take away illness. He does not take away death. Now, I'm a charismatic first, second, third, fourth, and fifth, but nevertheless, and I pray for healing, but still, many of the people I've prayed for have not been healed. Some of them have, praise be to God, but some of them have not. And therefore, I take it that God does not take away all the consequences of living in a broken world this side of eternity, though surely one day he will. But we live as though something strange has happened when we suffer. What God does promise is that he will be with us in all things. And I just want to say, emphatically, there is nothing in the Bible, certainly the New Testament, to suggest that God sends suffering to you. There are some suggestions of that in the Old Testament, but fortunately, we live in the completion, in the new. If Jesus thought suffering was such a good thing, why did he spend all his time taking it away? Now, in the evangelical wing of the church, we have sometimes been taught that God is sending me things to refine my character. So now, can you imagine Jesus going to the, you know, going amongst a group of sick people, and he finds Joe, and basically goes, oh, Joe, sorry, mate, I can't take away that sickness. I've done 25 paralyses today, but you've got to keep yours, because actually, do you know what? You need to learn a bit about perseverance. That is not the God of the New Testament. It's not the God of the New Testament. Jesus takes away all suffering and pain. He's opposed to it, and ultimately, there will be none of it. No more crying, no more death, blah, 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 you know. 
So basically, I would not assume that God has given you this awful thing to teach you some important lessons. Now, God can use anything, including awful things. He can and he will if we turn to him in it. He will use it for us because he uses anything. But that does not the same thing as saying he's giving it to you. And I think that's a really important distinction. Because who could trust in someone that might or actually has deliberately given you things to hurt you? Or alternatively, who could trust in someone who has let them down by letting things happen that would hurt them? And so I think a cause of songlessness is that... Bad things happen. Sometimes actually on the scale of 1 to 10, not that bad. Sometimes absolutely terrible. Bad things happen and in our heart, we disappear. We close down and we disappear. And that means that the song ceases to go on over time. It means that as we're at a distance from God, we don't hear his song as well. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is one of the main causes of songlessness. Whereas we could actually run into his arms in the real circumstances of our lives. And I would like to strongly recommend that option. So that's one cause of songlessness. The second reason why song ceases is because of the impact of our close personal friends, guilt and shame. Now, there's something again about the evangelical wing of the church that specializes in guilt and shame. Now, we who preach the cross of Jesus and sing about the cross of Jesus, nevertheless, tend to spend a lot of the time thinking, oh, woe is me, I am a slug. I am a slug, I'm a sinner, I'm a slug. I'm a spiritual slug. As I look around here, I see lots of nice, shiny saints, but I am a slug. If people knew what I had done last night, last week, last year, last month, last decade, they would never let me in here because I'm still remembering it. I'm carrying it around like a stinking bag of rubbish. I know that Jesus is the dustman of the world, but Jesus, thank you very much. This is too difficult for you, so I'm just going to keep hold of it if that's okay. I know it stinks, but it's mine. Is that you? Don't nod. It'll look embarrassing. It's many Christians. It's many Christians. One look at you, two looks at Jesus. One look at you, two looks at Jesus. In the New Testament, we, believers, are never described as sinners. We are always described as saints. People should pray to you. No, I'm only joking. So basically, you know, you're a saint of the Most High God. It's something that's been given to you. It's an identity, like son or daughter, given to you. If you go around saying, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, guess what? You'll probably behave like one, behave like one, behave like one. If you go around saying, I'm a saint, I'm a saint, I'm a saint, guess what? You'll probably behave like one. Oh, when the saints go marching in. Oh, when the saints go marching in. They're not going to say, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner. They're going to say, I'm a saint. Just saying. So I'd just like to tell you what I've been doing in recent months. Uh, First of all, I've been fighting. We're not supposed to fight, are we? I've been fighting. I've been fighting Barclays. They've just given me money by compensation. It's not the first or the last time that will probably happen. But I've been fighting them. I've been fighting members of my family um, who've been asking me to please stop fighting other people because it's putting them off their life. Um, I've been fighting a particular Christian organization. That's the thing that particularly put my family off um, me. Um, I've been fighting an abusive church leader. I've been fighting a friend who started behaving like an enemy. I've been fighting, fighting, fighting. 
And you know what? Some of the fights were necessary. That's one of the things I've been doing. I've also been on holiday. I go on holiday for four weeks in the summer. I forget my own name by the end of that time. Really recommend it. But what happens is I'm very good at parking what was happening, and then I pick it up again in September. So all the nasty, angry feelings, they ended uh, the last day of August, and then they came back, uh, sorry, the last day of July, and they came back again at the beginning of September. But what I'm actually supposed to be doing is this kind of thing. I'm supposed to be writing evangelistic talks. I'm supposed to be writing talks to inspire people to evangelize. I'm supposed to be praying. And so what I actually find myself doing is throwing myself upon God. I'm also supposed to be gearing up to having a little chat with God, maybe 15 to 20 minutes worth of chat on holiday in between sunbathing, and then gearing up to about an hour a day or more. And I always, and you don't need to do this, right? This is my job. But I feel like I have to pray for all of this. In fact, I have to set myself apart to be of any use whatsoever. I've been doing this for ages, and I know the deal. I know the score. God has been showing me that he wants me to be sanctified. He wants to set me apart. And he wants me to set myself apart for the purpose he's called me to. And so that involves a lot of praying, a lot of asking God, mainly praying for my own church to have the heart and the passion and vision to invite their friends to things and to pray, etc. So that's what I do. But I regularly feel as I come into it at the start, I'm the wrong person for this job. Because look at me, God, I've been fighting, fighting, fighting. It's not like the first time I've been fighting. I'm a professional fighter. I don't like people doing the wrong thing to me or to other people. And I get involved. I'm like a moth to a flame. And so if somebody does the wrong thing, I'm there to correct it. It's a nightmare. And when I start fighting, I can't stop. I get my foot on the fight pedal, and I just keep going. And I have unnecessary fights with PayPal and Barclays, etc., etc., to add to the other real fights I'm having. See what I'm saying? And it's, my family doesn't like it. They find it abrasive, and they hear me swearing. They hear me swearing on the phone. And I feel, you know, on the one hand, this is totally justified, totally justified, totally justified. On the other hand, it's totally inappropriate. So all I can do is come to God as I am with my real life in all its bloody, gory detail and ask God to meet me in this situation, to quieten me with his love and to sing over me again. And so what I'm going to do in the remaining few minutes is talk about the things that God, I believe, has been singing over me to help with the suffering songlessness and the shame songlessness, and I hope this will help you. So listen with your heart. I'm not, I'm not going to sing it. First of all, Paul talks about not having a righteousness of his own, but of having the righteousness of God that depends on faith. This is Philippians 3, verses 8 and 9. Not having the, righteous, having the righteousness of God that depends on faith. When we feel, as David did, that we've fallen into a slimy pit of mud and mire and that we are no longer worthy to say that we belong to God, it is at that very moment that we are to remember that righteousness is a gift. We never establish righteousness, ever. Our performance doesn't do it. Keeping on track for a while with God doesn't do it. God gives us righteousness. It's his gift to us. And he gives it to wholly undeserving people. So when we fail, which we all do, sometimes spectacularly and sometimes not so spectacularly, but we all fail, the way back is always the same. It's to return to God and the free gift of his righteousness made possible through the cross. Isaiah says this of God's restoration in Isaiah 56 verse 7. These I will bring and make them joyful in my house of prayer. For my house will be called a house of prayer for the nations. Notice that restoration leads to the renewed song of joy, which leads to spiritual activity, in this case prayer. 
Notice that God is not like you and I. We blow hot and cold. We are faithless and, fa- and uh, faithful, and we need to repent. But in Numbers 23:19, we read, God is not a human being that he should lie, or a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Has he spoken, will he not fulfill it? The primary word that God has spoken to you and I is the word of the gospel, the good news. The good news is not that you are a sinner. It's the joy of ministering on a ring road. Um, The good news is that God loves us despite everything. Why does God love us? Because he's love. God doesn't love you because of attributes personal to you. He loves you because he is love. It's his nature. He cannot but love you. So nothing you do will make God love you any more, and nothing you do will make God love you any less, because he loves you, because he loves you, because he loves you, because he is love. You can be a very good little girl. You can be a very bad little girl. You can be a very good little boy, a very bad little boy. God will continue to love you. His unrelenting love will come at you like a massive dog looking for something to lick. God is a God of inexpressible love. And he he loves you all the time, even when you've utterly failed him. Now, that does not in any way condone our failure. Our failure hurts us. It hurts God. It hurts the people around us. And it does huge damage. But extraordinarily, it does not deter the love of God. The love of God for you is the same as the first time you looked in his face. The love of God is the same as the first time you believed. The question is, do we still believe it? Are we letting the song go on? Are we hearing that song that he's still singing? Or have we counted ourselves out of the game? I am saying that suffering and failure are the things that stop us singing. But once we come back within the sound of the song again, once we're hearing that song again, and once we're singing that song again, then we want to tell our friends because we've actually got something to talk about. So I'm just saying it is songlessness that leads to no witness at a deeper level. Listen to this. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of them who take refuge in him will be condemned. Psalm 34 verse 22. Oh, did you hear a few bars of the song there? Let me try again. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of them who take refuge in him will be condemned. There is no condemnation for those in Christ. There is no condemnation for those in Christ. Ready to receive the forgiveness of sins? I'm just going to chuck it out. Forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins, forgiveness of sins, over here, ready? Forgiveness of sins, forgiveness of sins, forgiveness of sins, at the back, ready, over there? Forgiveness of sins, forgiveness of sins, how about you? Forgiveness of sins, whoa, forgiveness of sins. It's the most important thing I can say to you, and it's the most important thing you can say to me, that Jesus forgives us, and he continues to accept us, and it gives us an ongoing song. Listen to this. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you, says the Lord. Jeremiah 31 verse 3. God's everlasting love drives him forward despite our faithlessness. Listen to this. Lamentations 3.22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Can you hear the song? Can you hear any song now? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Few smiles. Thanks be to God. 
The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. God has been singing these verses over me. He's been hearing my prayer. He's been making me ready, giving me a song to sing, and I'm singing it to you. To those of you who need to hear this same song so that you can be made ready. An Olympian sanctifies him or herself. They set themselves apart for the purpose of what we've just seen and what we're seeing in the Paralympics. And we know that that involves sacrifice, deprivation, motivation, determination, everything we have going in the same direction to win the prize. So I always say to my church at this time a version of, what if we were all to sanctify ourselves? Give ourselves over to the evangelistic purposes of the church at this time of year. What if we all set ourselves apart for that? What would that look like? What would it actually look like to set yourself apart for this? Now, that is not the only thing the church needs to set itself apart for. There are lots of important things, but at this time of the year, here and in my church, it is the evangelistic purposes of the church that we're mainly focusing on. And you know, if it was other things, others of us would feel happier, and others of us would feel less happy because we'd be out of our comfort zone. But basically, I think a lot of the church is out out of its comfort zone when it comes to evangelism. And yet we all know, although this church is full, and thanks be to God for that, there are many, many people that do not believe anymore. So we are crucial. We are an actual fire. And people could come and join us. You know, if we all did participate, do you know one thing that would happen? We'd have a happier church story. Be more exciting. Do you remember that time when everybody invited all those people? Do you remember? Now, I'm saying to my church, let's bring 400 people to the Life Course Supper. Now, that is a lot more than we've been bringing recently. That's going for gold. We're going for gold in our church. We're relating the, uh, the uh, Life Course thing to the Olympics. We're going for gold. And the gold we're looking for is 400 people that we love, who we pray for, who don't share our faith. Now, that would be, that's a stretch. But winning a gold medal is a stretch. And I'm saying, let's go for something meaningful beyond a little bit of metal that after you've won it, isn't going to be able to speak to you, help you in a crisis, or do anything for you whatsoever. In fact, all it's really going to be need from you is to be protected in case somebody nicks it. Otherwise, it is of very little worth, apart from what it symbolizes about something you once did. Whereas we have people that will go on with us into eternity because of what we say and do. It's a very, very different level of achievement, in my opinion. So, could we, tonight, decide to invite God into the suffering that's ours, where we need to? Could we, however bad it's been, And I spoke to some people in a lot of pain this morning. I expect that. There's a lot of pain in the world and in the church. Could we decide to not hold God at arm's length anymore, but take him right in at the center again, particularly into the places of pain? Could we decide to do that so that we know there's nothing between us and God? Could we, where there's been guilt and shame and failure, could we determine to allow the dustman of the world to take away the rubbish. Could we let him do what he died to do? Could we just let that happen? How do you do it? You do it by faith. It's how you do anything in Christianity. It doesn't always feel that real, but faith 
is the way we operate. It's our mode of being. So we take Jesus at his word, and he does like that. Faith is the magic with God. He really likes it. So when we take him at his word, he's really happy. And actually, do you know what? The main word that I think we need to hear most of the time is this. God is nice, and he likes you. God is nice and he likes you. I know we'd like something a bit more challenging, but I reckon if we master Jesus loves me, this, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, that would probably be it. People want deeper teaching. Why? They haven't mastered the basic. Jesus loves you, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. God is nice and he likes you. I'll tell you what, once you've mastered that, we'll do some deeper teaching. How about that? So, um, would you like to stand? This is an opportunity to concretize a decision, I suppose. A decision to say, okay, God, I think I have kept you at arm's length for one reason or another. And I'd like you to come back in at the center. And I'd love a new song. And I'd love to feel that you're working in me to give me something beyond what I have at the moment. And so my suggestion is that to make it concrete, you might like to come to the front of the church. Now, I'd like you to know that I get paid the same amount of money, however many people come or do not come. Um, We've got people who will pray for people. You don't need to say anything. So if you come forward, nobody's going to embarrass you. They're not going to ask you for the details of what you're praying about. You just stand there and they pray for you. And I have found over the years that this is much more effective than me saying a little prayer at the end of my talk. I've found it's much more effective to give people an actual opportunity to respond to what God is actually saying now so they can get the Spirit of God into that thing. And so I see that as a pretty crucial part of um, the church service. So if you know that God is speaking to you, and that's the only reason to respond, please come forward and um, show courage, lead the way. People will join you.